the days. You're listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And we are shining a light on the Disco Biscuits for our next two episodes. The rejuvenated Disco Biscuits, right, Seth? Mm, Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The music that gets me in shape. I want to apologize offhand, though, folks. Those of you listeners that are new to our show, our quality of sound here. Oh, fan, yeah. Uh, I'm in Mexico right now. We're doing this remotely. Rob's in. I am in Decatur, Georgia, offhand. So uh, I apologize. We're doing this over the phone. So it's not our normal sound quality, but the quality of the music we're talking about is even beyond. So, Rob Turner, go ahead. Let our listeners know what they're in store for in this episode. We are going to have an intro with John Gutwillig where he walks us through uh, his uh, how he started his podcast, Touchdowns All Day how he was inspired by Osiris to, to start that, how that has rejuvenated his interest in the Disco Biscuits and how that kind of led in part to them being back on the road. Not only that, but they are diving into their tractor beam sort of alter ego again and in a new and more dramatic way. John will tell us a little bit about that. And they're also um, doing tractor beam shows separate from the Biscuits and working that ethos into the second sets of their own shows frequently. And, um, it's basically, Seth, where they, they shine a lot of DJs and music from all around the world and incorporate their own kind of approach to things with, into it and incorporate it into, into their music. It's pretty, pretty wild stuff. Where are you, Seth? I'm in Mexico. I just finished Closer to the Sun, and I'm about to start Strings and Soul. And, uh, yeah, man. What be in? What be in? So the next episode, the outro will be focused on Seth. He'll give us a little update from his journeys. But we... Uh, we are here thanks to our brethren at Osiris. Hi, this is Mimi with Fruition, and the podcast you are listening to is part of the Osiris Network. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with podcasts and live experiences about artists and topics you love. They'll be doing many live events this summer around the country, which will include artist interviews, contests, and more. 
Sign up for the newsletter at OsirisPod.com to stay in the loop. That's right, the Osiris Podcast Network, Osiris Media. Lots of great things going on, like Jam just happened. The new live music podcast has started, and um, great time, Seth. And, of course, after midnight, the uh, deep dive into 20 years from, uh, ago, the, the, the fish. Fish did their... Uh, the Big Cypress um, f- concert on yeah, the millennium. Man, I had that in the middle of this, uh, it's a five or six uh, episode miniseries. In the middle of it, the uh, fish themselves actually played after midnight for the first time in a while. It's only like fifth or sixth time they played it ever. Hmm. Um, pretty, pretty cool of them, huh? That is pretty cool. Pretty, is that an Osiris cool. nod? I wonder. Huh. <laughs> But hey, Rob, you, you, you asked me where I am, and one of the funny things about where I am, when I was last here on the site inspection just a couple weeks back, that's when you were actually doing the interview in which we're about to play. Wow. Yeah, talk about that yep. sandwich. It was when Star Kitchen, which is Mark's other band from the Disco Biscuits, they were at the Terminal West with uh, New Master Sounds, and... Um, this part of the interview, we mostly talk about Disco Biscuits, and then the next episode, you'll hear a lot about Star Kitchen and some additional Disco Biscuits. All of the music you hear is from the their uh, shows at the end of November, beginning of December, I think. Did they still end in December? I don't think so. It's, uh, they just did a run of six or eight shows, and all of this music is from those. They have shows coming up in Florida, and they're back on all of, as we said, New Year's run in New York. They come through North Carolina, and they're... they're more and more dates being added. They're playing that Mission Ballroom that we spoke of. I love Mission Ballroom. Such an amazing venue in beautiful Denver, Colorado. I mean, if you haven't heard about this place yet, check it out. It's the Red Rock. It's the indoor Red Rocks. I mean, it really is. And the shows they have going there are just nonstop. So good move on the biscuits. Go to discobiscuits.com for more dates, including the, uh, the Camp Disco, their annual summer event that they headlined that so many great EDM and other artists uh, have played over the years before they became famous. So this is not only just a good thing for Disco Biscuits, but for larger musical interests, a great way to get your foot in the door early on some of these artists because I'll tell you, the Biscuits and their friends, they, they mm-hmm. keep their they keep their fingers in the water and oh, they, yeah. they know Do you remember, Rob? Do you remember, Rob, when we went to um, Georgia Theater like, I don't know, 15 or 18 years ago? Maybe it wasn't that long ago, but it, it was, I forget when it was, but uh, the um, the Biscuits, uh, we had, um, we went to go see them, and they had Bass Nectar opening for them. Yep. They were on the Bass Nectar before anybody. Mm-hmm. Good example, Seth. Thank you. Yeah, and I, before we throw it over, because we have John on the phone for a quick interview, and then we'll cut to the beginning of the Mark interview, and the next episode will be all Mark. Uh, we just want to thank our people. Ira Gross, thank you for, uh, you know, engineering these episodes. Spencer Garn, thank you for your work. Harris with, Sullivan. Hold on. Spencer Garn with Diamond Street. Yeah, hopefully we're going to be doing more stuff there. Um, also, Cole Boudreau. So we really appreciate our team. We really appreciate our listeners. If you like what you hear, Disco Biscuits fans, please go to iTunes. Give a five-star review if you don't mind the crappy sound. Uh, at least the music and the Mark Brownstein interview part will sound pristine. Please give us a good review. Well, let's go ahead and jump right into our uh, call with John Gutwillig. What do you say there, uh, Mr. Mr. Turner? Mr. Paging Mr. Turner? Here, we finally got John Gutwillig on the phone, and here it is. 
are joined by truly one of the great improvisers and composers of the post-Garcia jam band era, uh, the magnificent John Gutwillard. John, welcome to Inside Out Country Turner. Beth, finally. It's amazing. I've been waiting for just months and months for you guys to ask me during the podcast, and now I'm really happy to be here. Well, you know, we'll do it in person at some point. Whenever you get to Atlanta, hopefully you get a five-night run coming. Now that the band is back on the road. Did you say a five-night? times on so many levels. Did you say five nights, Rob? It's a guess. It's my <laughs> speculation. Two nights of tractor beam and three nights of biscuits. But we'll get to that. First of all, touchdowns all day, John. What a, what a wonderful podcast you have. Thank and you. Thank you. I I love making podcasts. It's really great. It's easy and it's fun and, and it's, it definitely is unique way to communicate with people. Do you find your I podcast you, to you, be... You know, uh, hey, Rob, hang on. So do, do you find your podcast to be therapeutic for yourself? I kind of... Um, I think I'm following, like... Uh, I know a lot of guys in sports. I know Nick Saban, the coach of Alabama, particularly does, like, a Monday morning radio show. Yes. And I just kind of thought to myself, it would be nice for the fans if... I could put a narrative to the jamming. I just felt like there was a lot of fans that really liked the music, but they kind of felt to me like they were lacking ways to communicate or discuss what we were doing. And I don't even know if I have, you know, we speak a very musical language in the band, so I don't even think my verbal language of it is as good as it could be. And I just thought it was a win for both of those reasons to to do it, and I just think that, hey, if Nick Saban has time to make a radio show, then I should have time to make a podcast. And you get, you know, you come right in over the music and get very specific about specific moments and who's doing what, and, you know, you'll say, here's a point where Aaron and I are holding down a beat, so now Mark doesn't, you know, Mark can participate in the jam and not have to just hold it down, and, you know, and you also, you point out good moments, but then on the most recent episode, Facebook mating call, you point out how your effects actually clutter the music. So it's a very candid assessment. And I also like that Richfield provides you the music, but you are very smart and astute to listen to it for the first time while you're recording the podcast. So we're getting that fresh reaction. Yeah, that's that I do because of the, I think the fresh reaction is valuable. I don't know why I think that, but I would hate to listen to something and have all these great ideas about stuff and then listen to it again and not have, you know, what am I going to say second time around that I, it, it's not, it's, it's easy for me to, to put it all into the first lesson. Uh-huh. And it's so fun. And also, I think if I was choosing the moments, then I might miss out on a lot of stuff. I've really, I, I don't, never really attended a disco BT show. I don't really know what so what people like about it. I don't know what it's like in the crowd. So I feel like I'm perhaps the worst person to choose the jam. And it's great that Rick knows so much about our band and he's a really great person to choose. Mm. He does a great job. And that actually puts in mind another episode, the second to last one called The Gawk, uh, which is yes. uh, a testimony by Michael Dawson who gave you that fan perspective and just what well, I mean Seth knows I'm very critical jerk about interviewing styles and approaches. Oh, yes. But Brett really, he really asked great questions. It got to the core of a songwriter and a performer and how you tinker with the songs and all that stuff. It was an excellent uh, way to augment the uh, 
episode and to bring out the fan side, you know, in a, in a well-spoken way. I appreciate that. I think uh, he came over here with jams that he said people have discussed on many levels, and I've never heard any of them before. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what he was playing. I was like, he was like, me and Rick Seals debated this jam for years. I'm like, well, thanks for letting me on it. I can make a whole podcast you guys to come in with the good stuff in. <laughs> That's actually pretty interesting there, you know, because as on the fan side, we never... I personally never think about the conversations that are going on where people are really dissecting these things and fighting. I mean, big fights over over these things. The bands don't even have a clue that people are discussing it sometimes. Well, I would yeah, say band, he can't. We can't be part of that conversation because of the 90-10 principle, which means 90% of the conversations are positive, but 90% of the comments are positive, but you forget them immediately. Right. And 10% of the comments are negative, and you think about them for the rest of your life. Yeah. So if I'm on Fantasy Tour and I'm reading the biscuit chat, I won't remember any of the positive things that anybody says. And the four people who get on there and say, Barbara has a bad haircut, and I'll be like talking to, I'll be going in and out of hair for the next six weeks trying to get a better haircut. <laughs> He's going to get a new barber. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so relevant. You know what I mean? But, but, but you'll think about that and think about that. So mm-hmm. I, I personally need to stay away from that stuff. Uh, I, I, other guys in the band are okay with it a little bit more than me, but I still think it exists for them, too. And now, do I remember correctly, when we were chasing around in 98, 99, I think how you not being interested in listening to shows afterwards and breaking them down, and now you have a podcast doing the exact opposite. Is that accurate? Um, you wouldn't go back and listen very often, would you, back then? Well... You know what? I, I don't think that's the case. No, I think I always wanted to do this. Um, yeah, I, I I played sports in high school, and we watched film, and I, I saw saw the value of it. I think one of the things that didn't work was going back and listening to shows with the band in a critical way. So you're a musician, you're playing in a band, you got three or four other guys on stage with you going back and trying to tell each guy in the band and having them tell you what you did wrong in a situation that none of us are in anymore. <laughs> I don't think that worked for the dead. I don't see that working for fish ever. I, I think I don't, and it definitely wasn't a way for the business. To do hey, it certainly and didn't work. There's other improv acts out there. <laughs> I'd love to know what they think, but, but the podcast is different. That's not what the podcast is. The podcast is me, and the fan base sitting down and listening to Biscuits in more of a campfire style mm. vibe. You know, it's, sure. here's what we're doing. If it doesn't work out, or if it does work out, that's it. You know, it's not about let's fix this for later. There's no, there's no intention to improve from the podcast. The podcast just creates improvement on its own. And that's, that's a much, it's more of like a, like a, almost a Buddhist philosophy, like the less you try and improve, the more you will improve. The podcast is something where you're, you're not trying to improve, but it, it creates it on its own. Would you say the, the podcast that fueled your interest in, in taking the biscuits back on the road in a more regular fashion? Oh, I think the podcast is an essential part of that. Yeah. 100%. Hmm. I don't think I'm taking the biscuits back out on the road without, on the, without the podcast to me is not very appealing from a, uh, 
from a sense that the podcast allows me to raise a little bit of advertising money, which then allows me to pay people to deliver me the best biscuit jam so I don't have to go get them. So it allows me to listen to the music that I'm making in an enjoyable way. Um, and, you know, crazy as that is, like, there's, it's, there's all these jams that we were playing back in the 1999s and back in the 2002s and in the 2009s. And then after the tour, nobody would sit me down and be like, here's the best 10 moments of your tour in July. Huh. Yeah. And the podcast is a way for me to kind of get that done for myself. And then the way that I get that done is I just listen to it the first time with the fan base. And, uh, and then the fan base gets to hear my thoughts on it. So it's like a trade where everybody wins. It's really nice. I enjoy it. And I'm getting to know the music that we're making a lot better because of it. I'm listening to more biscuits this year than I've ever listened to in my whole life. And the fan base gets to learn what a kind of clever and quick witted guy you are off the stage. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. I, I hear a little Bill Burr. Are you a Bill Burr fan? I hear a Bill Burr influence. Honestly, um, I don't. I never really paid too much attention to Bill Burr as far as oh, you would love him. I don't know. YouTube doesn't show me his videos. I do search comedians a lot on YouTube, but I never show. I never see Bill Burr around for some reason in my feed. I don't know if I would. I don't know if we. We're both like northeast. Like kind of snarky comedic guy, so I'm sure there's some similarity there. But somebody told me the other day that like seven out of ten all of all comedians in the world are from the Northeast. <laughs> <laughs> and seven out of ten are Jewish, also. Go figure. It's in the water. Yeah, just, I don't know what it is, but uh, you know, there's something about having to deal with changing weather all the time in a large metropolitan environment that gives people the level of sarcasm that's necessary for for human to exist. That's how I would put it. Did Osiris uh, inspire you to start the podcast? Were you a fan of Osiris' podcast before this one? Yeah, I really liked it. It was definitely a big part of it. I definitely listened to Tom Marshall's podcast a lot. I listened to your podcast. I listened to No Simple Road podcast. Those were the three big ones. Um... I definitely have listened to some of the other new ones as well, but before I was, before 2019, which is when I decided to podcast, um, I was, those are the three that I listened to. I mean, like, friends of mine have been on all y'all podcasts. So it was, you guys were doing your podcasting, and it was unavoidable for me to, to listen to what you guys were doing. <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of fair to say then that Osiris sort of inspired this, you know, this gets returned to the road, is it not? Uh, it was a, uh, Osiris inspired the podcast, podcast inspired the state. Oh, I see the thing. Yeah, for sure, actually. But, yeah, I mean, honestly, Osiris meeting, no, I, I think you're, I mean, not a hundred percent, but twenty percent. Um, okay, get, okay. I, when I met Tom and RJ and told them I wanted to make a podcast, uh, it was a very inviting and positive and, uh, just like it's, the conversations were really great. Everybody was really ambitious. Everybody was in the same position of let's do this together and let's crush. And nobody was in this position of I'm great and you suck and I can help you. Everybody was in this position of like, we've been doing this a little bit and you're going to start doing it and we're going to do it together and it's going to be awesome. And it, it's just like, I, like right after I met with Tom and RJ, they came to LA. It was like one of our second or third meetings. I literally cut a podcast right after the meeting, <laughs> and that's the first episode. Nice. 
Like I got jazzed, I got excited, I hooked up the microphone, I pressed the cord, and then I cut 15 minutes of the intro dancer, like, on the fly. And then after that, I was like, holy shit, that's all it is. Wow, that's great to hear. All right, well, as I said, we'll sit down and have a more full inside-out Turner and Seth uh, type of interview, career-spanning. But we're just doing an intro for Mark. Um, before we get into Mark, though, we, we talk about Tractor Beam a good bit up front, but I, I'm going to take some of it out because if people really want to hear about Tractor Beam on a deep level, they want to listen to Touchdowns All Day, the next episode will be with Mark Brownstein. Isn't that, isn't that right? Yeah, we have a Mark episode dropping on Sunday, December 15th. <laughs> and and so, so, Rob, Rob, not only, that, not only is that episode dropping, but uh, I'm here in Mexico at Closer to the Sun, and Mark shows up here the other day. He was here. He was <laughs> he was in Tulum with his family, and I mean, it was just you know. It, I was like, wait a second, is holidays happening again? What's going on? And wait, the best part is, John. Get, John, guess what? Guess what he was on time for? Slightly stupid. Uh, uh, not slightly stupid. Sorry, but the autograph signing for all all the artists. <laughs> and and there's <laughs> there's Brownie. And he was like, on time for the autograph signing. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done that. I don't know what that's like. No, no. We always have a fill-in for you. <laughs> anyway, uh, go, go on, Rob. I'm sorry about that. No, it's all right. If you don't mind, it's just on a basic level, and like I'm saying, Biscuit fans, look for that episode and look for future touchdowns all day episodes to get more of a full explanation because there's a lot going on with Tractor Beam. It's a very new uh, approach for the Biscuits. There's full Tractor Beam shows, and now they're, you guys are working them into jams usually in the second set during the Biscuit show. Can you just talk on a basic level about Tractor Beam? Tractor Beam is a, it's, it's a lot of different things at once. But what it is in basic is the Biscuits are trying to take a classical music approach to worldwide sources of dance music. Different kinds of dance music from all around the world we're taking a classical music approach to it, meaning we're kind of like scoring it out and playing the score. Huh. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it allows us to play a lot of different kinds of music and dabble in a lot of different stuff. And it also allows us to learn how to do a lot of different things. And essentially, we can now play, you know, how bands have their alter ego band and, the, you know, Moe's Monkeys on Ecstasy and, this has all their side projects and everybody's doing their thing. Um, I always thought the Tractor Beam would be cooler as like a real like experiment like this as opposed to the band gets together and we just give ourselves a new name and just jam. Which is also cool, but yeah. this just jams so much that it's nice for us to go in the opposite direction, which is this is something that's super tight and super composed. And what it also, but the thing about it is we're not really that great at that approach. Our, everything we do is kind of super jammy. So it's going to be jammy just because we're doing it. And it's also really great to, uh, to go for a long run on. Someone's like, I don't get the disco piss because I said, put on your headphones and go for an hour run listening to them and you'll get it. Cool. I love that. You, keep the, you keep the energy up. You keep the energy up. You know what I mean? Even, even when things are sparse, the energy is still there when you guys are playing well. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure you know yeah, it's a high-energy thing, um, and it also is something that the fans have done a huge job in creating. And I feel like we have 
kind of an authenticity that we maintain because the fan, fans have maintained an authenticity in us. And so there's, there's, a, there's a thing about rock fans and music fans is they, they, they go crazy and they do wacky stuff. And I think that we're very focused on kind of being the best version of the Disco Bitcoin that everybody loves. Well, you were more the careful listener. Like a lot of these segues are just mind-blowingly subtle. And uh, I remember the whole transfusion thing name came out of just how subtle and, and morphy the jams were. And they still remain that way, just in a new context. Are, are you finding it fun exper- experimenting with drones? I'm sure sometimes they don't work, you know. I mean, you have to completely change your guitar uh, when you do the trash with right? Can you want to basically yeah. explain that? I have a guitar that uses a piece of code that was written by a computer. It's an AI piece of code, and that computer figured out how to translate my normal guitar notes into synthesizer MIDI notes, and then I have it hooked up to a bunch of synthesizers in the computer when literally playing synths. Uh, maybe the first time that anybody's really done this real time in, on Earth, <laughs> and maybe somebody else has, but I, I've never seen it, so I don't know. To me, it seems like the first time. Uh, the AI that wrote the software just wrote it like a year ago. So it's really like I'm very much on the cutting edge of what's going on. And essentially when Tractor Beam gets its set list, which are chosen by other people, um, that, that means it could be anything. And so we, me and Aaron have a lot of responsibility of talking to each other and deciding how we're going to blend together because it could be it's, it could be down to either one of us has, like, as a, we have to create the soundscapes of practically. So practically, we spend a little less time figuring out how to improvise each other, and we get a little segment of the show where we work on what we're playing with each other and why and that kind of stuff. And we try and do it real controlled. And as people are saying, it's their favorite part of the show. And I think it's because some people do like that level of control in the music, and they, they, it makes them comfortable and makes them dance and just get that. Mm-hmm. Are you doing a lot of trial on air on stage? Or are you doing uh, experimenting with different things off stage and bringing them on? Or is there? Is, do you follow what I'm saying? Well, yeah. I think at the end of every the thing about track is it's in this like womb phase, right? It's in this like nucleus womb incubation phase where. We do 20 minutes of Tractivine every second set, much like the dead did throughout the stage. It's the same philosophy. Give people, give the band a break and give the fans a break from your normal thing for a few minutes, and that way you can maintain these three and a half hour shows that the dead did and that we did. So it's, it's, it's made the biscuit parts of the second set better because now the last 20 minutes of the biscuit show, I get to go back to raw improv again. Yeah. You know, and oh. now I'm like, oh, great. Oh, yeah. I don't have to worry about what's going on anymore. I get to play the crazy shit now. And sometimes when you're playing like a 75 minute set, if the middle of the show is super crazy, the end of the show couldn't possibly top that. And when you're, in, you know, other bands will like play some pop songs or some sing alongs or something like that in that situation. And the biscuits, we just don't do pop songs and sing alongs. We like to keep jamming. But track to be makes it so every night we do get a little break. It's just dance music, and everybody likes that. It kind of fits in with our style really well. Right, and coming out, it's like you're getting right out of the cage for the end of the show, which is the end of the show a nice way. Yeah, and then the end of the show just crushes every night because the whole room is dancing, and but then we take control 
of the harmonies and the melodies again and do what we do. But you're already dancing. It's not a slowdown. It's not a bathroom break. It's like it's it's like an intensity builder, you know. And then the end of the show is so much more intense because of it. And talk about yeah, the, important, the importance of having a basis like Mark Brownstein when you embark on uh, something as ambitious as this tractor beam and talk about some of the other things that make him a special uh, bandmate and basis to you. I mean, Mark is arguably one of the best players on the planet at the base, there's no question in my mind. He, um, and the one thing that Mark has always been great for as foil with me in the band is that I just don't need to really micromanage what he does ever. I don't need to care. He's always doing something smart. He's always doing something that works. And there's a lot of times where I'm not. And so it's nice where there's one guy, and there's and Aaron, there's a lot of time where he's not. And there's a lot of time where Alan is doing this other thing. Like me, Aaron, and Alan, we do go to some weird places, and it doesn't work. Mark's shit usually works all the time. I can't think of some a night when Mark didn't play fabulously off of days. He's like, he's always good. He's always on. He's always playing the right thing. And if you listen to the bass lines, the funky as fuck. And so it's just like, Guy's amazing at what he does. There's no question. All right, Seth, you got anything else, or should we throw it to the Mark interview? No, let's throw it to the Mark interview, but uh, thanks so much for uh, giving us your time, and uh, we look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, yeah anytime, guys. Love you both. As soon as you're in Atlanta, let's sit down and do a full, long, maybe two-parter-style uh, Inside Out episode uh, with uh, John Gutwillig. Is that cool? I am down I as, long as, we, uh, as long as we invert it. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty good at that. Can you handle that? I think I can handle that. I'm glad you mentioned that, Seth, because in respect to the disco biscuits, we are going to throw to the end of the interview, and then at the end, we will go to the beginning. It will be an inverted interview. So, folks, <laughs> God bless the disco biscuits. It is such great news that they're back. Thank you so much, John. I know yes. so many disco biscuits fans that are more excited about the band than they have been in forever. It's uh-huh. a great time to be a biscuit fan. I agree. The band's super excited. Everyone's really excited. There's so much cool stuff going on. Um, I wrote a really great song today. So I think hey. that, uh, yeah, it just happened. I got off the phone and I just had this little thing going around in my head and I yelled it into my little voice recorder. And I'm pretty sure what I yelled into the voice recorder is good. I don't think you need to like change it. You can like put it through a whole process. But every once in a while I get what I got today, which is like a, it's just good. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, and I'm going to work on that later tonight, but you know, I'm got a title. I always got time. To, I always got time to talk to you guys. 100%. Got a title? Is it left? Uh, I don't know yet. It's, it's, I'm not, I'm going to put it in real quick. So, uh, we'll play it in the next eight or nine shows. It'll just be this fast and serious musical piece that shows up in the middle of nowhere. You might even think it's a jam. And then eventually when they get robbed, remember in the old days when like, we used to play that one little musical tape and then next thing you knew it was in the middle of Shinny? Yeah, I remember you showing up to some show where you were in state college when you were going to open for Street Cheese, I think, and it was a brand new song. You are like, you're going to love this song. And it was, it was Shinny, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're in that stage right now. It's a really fun time. <laughs> Is that, where did that come from? What, what jam did that come from? Uh, this is a little thing that was written, that was cool, it's kind of like what happened today, and then Shimmy was written, which was a little rock song that was cool, and 
wanted to sing Zilton to Shimmy because I wanted Shimmy to be kind of a more grandiose thing. And then I wrote those extra parts of that little musical section so that the musical section was more than 32 seconds long because it needed to be, to, to be, a, to be part of Shimmy. It was just like, it was too small to be part of such a larger song. I made it longer and went into it a little bit, got a little house and went around with it. And then, uh, and then boom, great song. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, John. We'll be listening to Touchdowns all day. It's a great podcast, folks. You don't have to be a Biscuits fan to listen, but if you are a Biscuits fan, you really, really should not miss this podcast at all, any episode ever. I agree, 100% agree. <laughs> great, talk- guys. Great talking to you. Ditto. Take and here's care. Mark Brownstein with me from the Terminal West. See you week, at the time next year? Man, you know I can't tell you that. Well, I'll end with this, Mark. I love you. I love you too, man. It's been a great talk. We're on? We're on. Yes, and we're high above Terminal West in the loft that's becoming our inside-out WTNS home away from home with a man who is an old dear friend of over 20 years now, Mark. Long time. And uh, front man or sort of of Star Kitchen? We're, We're just a we. We are a we. And uh, there's five of us, and we're a band. Co founder of Disco Biscuits, and, you know, let's face it, perhaps even more profound co founder of Headcount. I would hope that it would be that both of these things would be profound in their own right. (laughs) Um, But for me, they are obviously incredibly proud of both. 
But you're probably hearing this in November or later. But as we sit here, Mark is is finalizing work on Tractor Beam. So before we talk about Star Kitchen, could you explain what Tractor Beam is and explain how it's uh, there's a new era, how you got some new ideas going with it? Well, I can explain what Tractor Beam isn't. Um, probably even easier. And what it isn't, and by now. When you're listening to this, you'll know this already. Yeah, next Thursday is the San Francisco thing. Next Thursday is, it's in, it's in Frisco, Colorado. Oh, excuse me. Because if I were to say Frisco and I were referring to San Francisco, that would be a huge faux pas. Right, it's, saying, it's like saying Oregon. Yeah, so I, it's, when I say Frisco, I mean the one in Colorado, and we're doing two nights uh, there. Uh, actually, now we've already done two nights there. And what we've done... Um, but are now doing in this little time warp we've created here on your podcast is we are, n- or what we aren't doing, I should say, <laughs> is we are not going to the Frisco and playing Mr. Don uh, in 1999 and confrontation without vocals and having Magner play a synth line on top of it. Um, I think largely in part because... Um, that doesn't necessarily accomplish anything other than, you know, just making it easier to set up and sound check for the, <laughs> for the crew and the band, you know, and it's like, if we're playing those songs, we may as well even be singing them in my own humble opinion. And I, I, of course, I always start every podcast by saying, you know, I speak from, I, I, I here I have to speak for myself because I can't speak for everybody else in the band. I don't know what anybody's what everybody's thinking at any sure. given time and I But that's a beauty podcast. You you yeah. are free to speak as freely as you wish. But um you know uh, for myself, I feel like uh, if we're to do something like this that uh, we ought to do what we just did, which is to spend a really long, you know, time putting in a lot of hours to try to make it something unique and special and different and uh and that's what's happening this time around with tractor beam is that uh for the last four weeks uh and i've been going in and out of philly for star kitchen tour but for the last four weeks every moment of every day has been dedicated basically to preparing for these two tractor beam shows uh so that we can bring a whole new set of music in which um by now they've heard and how in turn do you think that would we we're a dawn of a beautiful day you listened to me in the last podcast i said that you know you're at your peak of, prior, of uh, popularity you should tour and you made you said something about um oversaturating a market that you didn't want to do that yeah well that's i mean it's there's and then you played, tr- like, 11 Atlanta shows the next 10 months or something. There's a truth to that, though. Like, oh, yeah, you know, I agree, I agree. You know, but you, now you are on tour. How will this fuel the biscuits? Well, it would take the biscuits a really long time to oversaturate anything after the eight years of not really touring. That's what I was thinking when you said it in the last interview. Right. But you were so nice to give us the time. You were so busy that day that when we did the first interview and the train went by, uh-huh. and you, you still made time for us. That was really... I'll always make time for you. Yeah, but you had the festival, and you, it was a late-night gig, and you had other stuff going on. There Seriously. was a lot going on. And we were nobody. Not that we're anybody now. We were even less of nobody then. So it well, was really... when we were nobodies... Seth and I. Seth should be here. He's very regrets not being here. When we were nobodies, uh, I remember a time when... Uh, Two guys had the courage to be the only two people in a venue to step out in front of the band and give us all of their energy dancing. One of them obviously being David Sislavsky and the other yours truly. Not yours truly. You. Yeah, well, it's hard not to dance watching. Right, so you know what I mean? I, I make time for you. Thank you. 
the way Appreciate you made time for us. For not everybody remembers years. as well as you do, Mark. Not everybody remembers things uh, like that. We as were well at Harper's do. Ferry, and there was a smattering of people there in at the back of the room, uh, sitting at the bar, waiting for whatever band was headlining the show. Do you remember who headlined? The Some Harper's forgotten Ferry show? band. Some forgotten band, and uh, and the Disco Biscuits went on, and it was just as empty of a dance floor as you can get. And if, if I remember correctly, there's a dance floor and then there's like this, like some like chairs and a sort of border around it. And then above that, there's like the bar area and truly nobody was on the dance floor when I say zero people. Uh, but then you guys came out and you came to the front row and you did your Muppet dance, like <laughs> both of you together doing the Muppet dance. I see it as fuel the band dance myself. I've seen the Muppet dance uh, you know, as two amongst 12,000 Muppets in an arena. And I, I'll see them from across the way and be like, there they are doing the Muppet dance here in this very comfortable, warm environment. But you guys stepped out. It's not always, it takes courage to step out onto the dance floor when nobody's on it. It really does. Well, and that's, that's, I'll never forget that. I was like, these two guys are showing real fan courage here. And here we are, 20 years later, so we got you for life. Right on. You know, friends for life. Yeah. You know, that's right across the street from where I first saw Fish. That Molly's Club was right across from where Harper's Ferry. Wow. And Harper's Ferry, some legendary, legendary blues people have played there. Yeah. But let's get back to you. So Tractor Beam. So, you know. How the, will it fuel the biscuits? The idea. All this DJ work. Yeah, the idea on Tractor Beam, I think, was to kind of dig really, really deep into the world of house music and uh, and take some long-form DJ mixes and just deconstruct them musically to see on an academic level how the sets are progressing over eight-bar loops, you know? And, 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 and uh, I've actually had some experience doing this because when I was in Younger Brother... And, and I needed to chart out the Younger Brothers show. These guys didn't need to chart it out. They had their computer. You know, the, the Simon and Benji were on their computers. So in order to be the backing band for a computer show, you, there's, there's, it's not very flexible. You know, there's no flexibility there. You have to, when, the, when it hits the break, you need to know the break is coming because if you keep playing, that's your shot. So I had to chart this entire show out but like bar for bar and every eight bars I would write okay this eight bars is an E and it goes to C and there's a vocal over it and then the next eight bars is E to C and the vocal starts getting twisted. Meticulous work. And then the next eight bars is E to C but a G comes in on the end and then this synth line comes in on top of it and I came in with these you know, very, very meticulous charts, you know, that that were comprehensive, deep, and, like, bar for bar of the whole music, and I was able to get Joe Russo, Tommy Hamilton, and myself through the, the shows, and even at times was sort of kind of given the cues back to Simon um, when they were playing guitar and or, or keyboard, Simon and Benji and Rue, who was singing, would get the cues. I had just done it on a level that was so meticulous that, it, that, that people were looking to my charts for guidance through the whole thing. So having gone through that experience, I knew that in order to take a two-hour DJ mix and learn it note for note and and be able to bring it you know as a performance to the stage that I was going to have to 
deconstruct really what was going on here. And, and, and Barbara very early on was like, it's all about eight bar loops, which was something I was like familiar with that concept. And, uh, there's sometimes four bar loops and then you're off the eight, you know, sometimes there's two bar loops and then it comes back off. But amazingly, it always at some point in the mix corrects these DJs somehow they make it morph. The, it, they're, the, it's, their whole song is off of where the bigger one was from like the first, if you were to time code the whole entire set. Like sometimes they'll come in halfway through an eight bar loop or a quarter of the way through, but they always manage to two breaks later come back out in the right spot. I'm not 100% sure and I'm actually very interested in it as a DJ myself. Right. I'm learning a lot about DJing from deconstructing this um, hodgepodge of, of, of tracks that are mixed together and I've discovered one thing which is that what the biscuits do is so similar to, uh, to what a DJ set is. Um, long sections of house music that get laid out over 10, 15, 20 minutes, you know, some often without any vocal sections coming in. And as I'm breaking this down, I'm realizing that as they're mixing through some of these songs, they're going from F sharp to F or F to E or like just a half step off things that you wouldn't necessarily think of as the, as the most harmonious, uh, segue. And then there'll be like a 30 second or a minute long version of these DJ mixes where it sounds a little off. It's off like (laughs) harmonically and even trying to figure out, are we in F or are we in F sharp? What are we in here? But then when it resolves and then it resolves and the resolve is so beautiful and peaceful. And, 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 and I think that's part of the magic I've been trying to, avoid those moments in my DJ set where it doesn't match up or mix up harmonically. And in fact, if you were to take DJ tutorials, they tell you, you know, uh, you take the bass out, you do this, you got to make, choose tracks that are in complementary keys, you know? True. But I imagine you have to learn the box before you break out of the box, right? Well, Carl Cox knows the box and, and he's throwing down what's called legendary Ibiza DJ set, you know, and like, uh, and it, and every like four minutes this happens where it's like, whoa, this is super kind of, uh, there's, it's kind of, there's a friction, a palpable friction in the music, but it's the resolve. And the more I listened and the more I deconstructed it and the more I practiced along with this and tried to figure out where a bass fits into these sections if at all um, the more I started thinking about the disco biscuits and how we jam and I started to think about all of those moments in our jams where we'll be in different keys and I've often thought of that as as a something that detracts from the music that we don't want to be in different keys. We want to be all linked up in D Dorian or no. whatever it is, or G Lydian, or we want to, we want to have a, a peacefulness and a harmony where we all agree on what the, the key that we're in is, but you can't always do that with our type of jamming because we're jamming from one key to a different key. And if you're being true to yourself, you, you know, and, 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 
and saying we can do anything and we don't want to just do the easy things like go from E to G or G to D or right. you know C to G or whatever jump you want, fifths or you want to challenge each other and challenge a listener and reward the careful listener that's what you guys have always done well then possibly you can start to think of these moments where you can hear the band isn't all together and there's a friction and there's a, 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 a sandpaper sort of, yeah the sandpaper that there's that that there's a certain quality to the music that's making you feel like it's a little bit off or uh, what have you, that that can be a very positive part of the creative process because, as you say, when you get to the resolve, it's very powerful emotional moment when it all comes into focus it's uh, my favorite analogy is like you know when you're in the eye doctor and 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 they're like which is what's you know what's <laughs> right is that more clear this or is one this or more clear yeah. is this one or that one and i it, it kind of plays head games with me. I'll be honest with you. I don't know if anybody else goes through this out there in Podland, but do you ever think to yourself, I don't know which one looks better? Yeah, when they get down they, to the real, the real, they both close look ones. kind of bad. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, those two both look kind of good. I don't know. I like it to be very clear. This one's very, you know, cloudy, and this one's clear. Oh, that one's better. But when they finally get it, and both of them are on there, and everything <sighs> comes into focus. Ah. That's how it is, you know. Like I, that's really not how it is with a jam. But I mean, I do, I do like that moment at the eye doctor. Who are some of the DJs that are most influencing this? Well, everybody was tasked with choosing long form sections of DJ mixes. So we, you know, we, I, I, my stuff that I am really into is kind of like you know, new disco or deep house or space disco. So I, I wanted to do some Todd Turier because um, harmonically it's like really, really interesting changes, stuff that you wouldn't do in an improv section. It would have to be composed because nobody, like it would be really hard to pick up the kinds of changes that these guys throw in. Lots of like half step changes and then, you know, things that end up in uh tritones and uh just not your standard deviations you know and so learning that stuff was really interesting because i've listened to it and dj'd it a lot and i can hear that it's different harmonically that there's something going on there but i hadn't had the chance to say what is going on here why are these changes so cool and it's 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 a sort of an aesthetic through all of Todd Turier's music, you know, it, there's this beauty and complexity, and so that was one that I picked, and and I'm working my way through it still with eight days to go, you know, and and it's it's, uh, uh you know, we're trying to be like super relaxed and and <laughs> and easy, and I said to the band, you know, they were like, you know, let's just be relaxed and come in and have a great time and do this next week, and I said, well, for me, one thing I've learned about myself is uh and you know where i've learned this from from like shows like dance party time machine in denver where i have to learn 13 songs or like you know the beanstalk super jam or like jen hartswick band's show that i did out in california where i get 12 or 13 songs and i have to learn them and i'm playing them with people who really know the music really well already like you know there's a million bass players that know all of those 13 songs already and so you you know i've discovered about myself that in order to be relaxed, I have to be over-prepared. I've got to 
know it so well that I'm relaxed. But it's not relaxing to get to that point. You know what I mean? It's, it's my family is wondering what's going on with me right now. You know, like they, they can hear it. My studio's right off the kitchen and, and, you know, I'm blasting house music 10 hours a day playing along with it and charting it out and going through this process of trying to figure out how to get it to the stage. And it's been, uh, I'll tell you, it's exciting times since our last time, you know, where I had to kind of poke around the issue. Well, you know, people, you know, you know, the biscuits are reinvigorated. Everything happens the, in the way that it has to happen. What do you see as the biggest thing that's reinvigorated? I mean, mainly John I is mean, back interested in the disco biscuits. Is that okay to say more than he? I mean, he is so. I, I listened to his podcast, and it's just so wonderful hearing him talk about the segues and all this stuff. It just seems like he's well, totally fired up on the disco biscuits. When I heard the first couple of touchdowns all day podcasts, I just heard that in his voice as well like I, I hear the love like you know sometimes it's hard to know if the other guys love you or love it or you know it's hard to know we're guys we don't talk about our feelings you know what I mean it's not like it's not like you know it is I don't know who does but we don't and and hearing that kind of gave me a sense earlier in the year that wow this this my partner loves what we do so much and you know and it it was a boost of confidence around you know my own job and a sense of well-being around you know the band but you know it's no secret that he was the guy's a genius yes he could do anything start there he could do anything guy's a genius and you know for for whatever it was that he had to satisfy the craving to do something other than play music during the course of his adult life. And um, he's the type of guy that when he decides he wants to do something, he becomes an expert at it. He doesn't hang out in the back lounge of the bus smoking weed. (laughs) He doesn't, like, you know, waste time during the day watching TV. He doesn't... You know, he doesn't waste time. He doesn't fritter he's, his life away with detail. He's not a time waster at all. He right. gets deeply into things, and when he's and whatever he's into at that moment, he pours everything into it. And you know, I, I he did that with coding. It's, it's really impressive what he accomplished in his eight years as as a software coder. You know, I saw him in the bus in 2010 learning how to code. You know, just like I'm going to learn how to do this. And to take that to become a founder, you know, of, of apps and an inventor of technologies that have redefined the way that music is made. The guy redefined. Now, I, I finally got on Splice recently. I know that the whole industry is on it, <laughs> but I took a break, like a four-year break from producing music. I wrote songs on my instruments, like in the old days. And... Uh, and I just cleared my computer of Ableton and all other like music making softwares. I just went in the opposite direction after the conspirator thing had played itself out. And I was like, I just want to not be staring at this screen anymore. I just want to be like up here with my instrument in my hands, working on playing bass. I, I, I felt like I needed to work on that. 
not sit there with my hands on the keyboard working on this. It's like how I don't want notes. I want to just do conversation. So I put down the computer and I picked up my bass about nice. four years ago. I was heavily inspired by a, a, a Roger jam at, at the Camden Fish Show a couple summers ago. And oh, Mike, really? Yeah, Mike was ripping... Uh, Arpeggios in the top of the jam. He was just like. Mike was just running circles around that bass, and um, and it it, it it struck me as uh, as a moment of inspiration. And I went home that night and started working on arpeggios, which is something you know. When I was in jazz school, I had to do all of this stuff, but I had kind of had let go of some of the really technical things that I had been working on years ago, and. Um, uh, and I just picked the bass up and started running through every two two octaves every arpeggio the major the minor you know the half diminished the diminished all of the modes i would go up the mode from you know from the major to the dorian to the phrygian to the lydian to the mixolydian aeolian right up the neck um and i'd i'd go to you know start on the major mode and i would be like two octaves of major right up two octaves of dorian right up two octaves of phrygian and then i would do that in c right so that's all of the white keys on the piano so you're just moving your hand up on a piano like one one note, it's super easy to do on a piano, but on a bass, it, it you know, it's a little trickier than that. So, and you're doing then, this to spoke, to kind of stoke the creativity, to kind of get the mind thinking about, just to master the neck of the the bass, you know, just to know where every, you know, there's when you play an instrument, there's certain parts that you play so much more than other parts that unless you're practicing the whole neck up and down, you're going to naturally be more comfortable with certain parts than others in terms of where is the A, where is the D. Like, you know, it's, it's after 25 years, I should know every single note on the bass, and I do now. You sound like we're talking about why he does all the different weird variations of chords, yeah. all the different chordal things. He says it's because he wants to be familiar with that part, in part, that he wants to be familiar with the whole neck. That's interesting. I, I never heard him say that, but it's a, it's a thing. 
that's a that's a notion on a stringed instrument. Okay. And he, so as a younger musician, I played you know down on the first seven frets. That's where almost everything went. I never really played. I played occasionally once I got my octave pedal. You have to play from the seventh fret and up. So I started to become much more familiar with the top of the neck. Okay. You know, certainly there's some songs like the. Once you get to the octave, the twelfth fret, you can replicate those first five frets. It's just a pattern. So if you're up up there, but right below the twelfth fret, the tenth, the eleventh, you know, the 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 ninth is the eighth fret. Those frets on the bottom strings, the B string, the E string, and the A string, kind of dogged me a little bit when I was younger. I wasn't always exact. I wasn't just automatic. The forgotten I, frets. I had to think like, oh, which is that A or D? Where? What am I going to hit down here? So. You know, that's why you do two octaves when you're running these scales, because I could very easily stay up in the top octave and never get down to those notes, you know. So, I, you, you know, if you're really challenging yourself, you're going to do the full two octaves, and, and that makes it so that you have to move your fingers from one position to another. And it's, this is all rudimentary shit, you know what I mean? It's basic stuff, but when I was... 16 and I was really starting to practice this stuff. I didn't know major Dorian Phrygian, you know, Lydian, Mixolydian, Aeol, you know, I didn't know the modes the way the way that I know them now. I mean, I knew the each of the modes. I couldn't rattle off their names. It takes a long time to learn this stuff, you know what I mean? And then to master it in C and then move up to C sharp and then move up to D. And w- when I say that, I mean I move the major chord up to D. And now I'm playing D major two octaves, and then I'm playing E Dorian two octaves, and I'm playing, you know, F sharp Phrygian and G Lydian and A Mixolydian and so forth. And then I move up to E flat, and it becomes it becomes E flat major and F Dorian. And I know that this is will be over people's heads who don't understand sure. modes. But if anybody knows Amar if, Sustri, do you know Amar? Yeah. He is... is yeah, Amar's great. I he love is guiding his. people like myself into an, an understanding of this. If you th- the, the Hampton Haley's Comet video that he did talks about right, the, the modal... about the, how they all agreed on Dorian. Amazing. He walks us right through it. And so that's why I have any semblance of understanding what you're saying is because of Amar. Right, yeah. He does, he does a really, really good job with yes. the anatomy of the jam stuff it's really really interesting to walk, to see from a, a fan's angle and it's funny because that's what we're doing with the tractor beam dj sets is we're deconstructing them the way that he's deconstructing fish jams you know i mean the deconstructing fish jams wouldn't do us any good because we're we're trying to get i mean trying we're 20 years away from saying we're gonna do our jamming in a different style so as to be our own thing because you have to do that or what are you you know what i mean so obviously we're heavily inspired by the grateful dead and by fish um but equally by you know especially now carl cox you know and 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 so many other kinds of music from you know tchaikovsky to beethoven you know and, and on through the <laughs> debussy list. debussy wagner <laughs> wagner Right. That was Zappa's guy. Stravinsky. Stravinsky. <laughs> I talked about Stravinsky with Bromberg, but let's, that's a whole other thing. Right. Um, so, so, real so, quick, but you're here with Star Kitchen, but the, the biscuits, the newest biscuits material, what, what, is, what are the songs you're most excited about and what are the songs that have the most potential for improvisational wildness? Well, of the brand new ones, you know, since like New Orleans to now. You busted out like three in New Orleans. You got to look them up. No, we, oh. we only busted out the sample has a name in New Orleans. That's and it John's. Was, we played Miracles. We've played it a bunch of times. Miracles it's a bunch. A, it's a newer song, though. I would call that in the new songs. Um, 
I, honestly, there's a a well of them right now. And Some I, unplayed. I haven't even heard all of. Them. You know what I mean? Like a lot. Some of are them. unplayed. All unplayed. Oh wow! There's like a there's a future of songs, right? We announced an album. Where are you going to record it? It's been a while. Um, yeah, well, we're gonna. That's the secret location. This comes out in November. Zexy. 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 Right. We're gonna record it in. Uh, Get sexy at Zexy. Multiple multiple studios. Los Angeles. Is Alan writing as well? Always. Alan and Barbara did one of the songs. I forget what they... Uh, the fans named it, and now I can't remember off the top of my head because it was a couple months ago that we learned the, this other new song. And we, we played this one at, at Camp Bisco and didn't play it on stage, but we spent the whole weekend working on it. You guys, the fans, will know what I'm talking about. It's the one that they named on Barbara's podcast. He played them a little snippet. Alan went out to L.A., and they got in the studio and played together. I, he had a show out there with Re, Marcus Rezac or something, and he went to Barber's place, and they got in the studio and recorded a little bit. And at Camp Bisco, we learned the song and really, like, we learned it leading up to Camp Bisco and showed up, and we really played it backstage, like, you know, a handful of four or five different times. And, by the, by, and, and then we went out on stage and played it at Soundcheck, and it blew up. I mean, it was huge, slower, kind of hip-hoppy track, dubby, dubby kind of a vibe, bluesy. It was really, really good. I was like, if this is like, the, hey, I got this little track, like, let's quickly learn this on the way to, like, you know, us hearing all the rest of the music. Barbara's played me a handful of the tracks. Um, we started learning a couple of them backstage at Camp Bisco just for fun. He was like, hey, let's do this track, and he put, took his computer out and... So, so they're coming. Everything so this, felt really good. This I was tour. like, man, this feels really, really good. This tour, yeah, we you got a tour right now. There'll be there'll be new material coming. I mean, I can't I can't see a situation where we're hanging out together for nine days in a row and or ten days in a row and not working on the stuff that we've already started working on is clearly coming. I'm gonna have to and, start chasing you and annoying you like the old days. Brother, nothing would make me more happy than that. You know what I mean? That's it. That would be the day. The day that you leave Atlanta for a Disco Biscuit show. <laughs> like, give us a minute. We're going to make an amazing, amazing album. Alan, who's from Atlanta, does he get credit for... I think it's... With a band like you guys, it's so difficult to step in. Let's face it. You were away from the band for a while. Even though Amazing Bass has stepped in, never came close to the magic. You played some shows without Gut Willig. I mean, come on. But he was able to step in. Sam Altman was a fucking incredible <laughs> drummer. And Alan has Tommy really... Did a, Tommy and Machete did a great Of course job. they did. Of course they did. It and Tommy amazing. has sat in with you. I'm not putting them down. They're amazing Those players. Guys. But I that's know, the beauty of the Biscuits. It's a magic between the it's four of you. Something and Something happens, right? And one of the four changed. And yet, uh, you know, a, there was a rough transition, a, but you got back there. It's a big... It was a big change to, to change out the drummer. And then to have somebody with a slightly different style, you know, not... It's just different. He's he's different in such an amazing way, though, especially now that I've been listening through. Man, listening through these DJ sets over the last couple of weeks has given me such a heightened appreciation of the way that Alan plays drums because he people are like, he's a robot, he's a robot. Mm -mm. Man, he, the the heart and the soul that he puts into the to to bringing to life what previously people had only ever heard by computer 
and he he does such a crazy job of playing high energy techno and keeping it the way it needs to be to be it, it occurred to me when i was going through this i was like man it's the most authentic part of electronic music in terms of what we're bringing you is alan by far and away it's the thing that sounds he's got the least to do in terms of trying to figure out how to make a house song sound like a house song aaron right behind that because he has you know the 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 sound quality of his instrument is you know comes from there but it's hard to do on a stringed instrument it's hard to do. Now, there's a lot of electronic music that uses stringed instruments in it, but it's hard to consistently bring it out and make it, you know, kind of sound authentic. So, yeah. Alan. I like him was, getting his props because, I mean, you you and Aaron and Gut Willig are little icons of the jam scene now, you know what I mean? And Alan sometimes gets forgotten, I think. Maybe not necessarily by the Biscuit fan base, but just maybe just outside the periphery. That There's a pretty know, incredible and amazing drummer that's part of this as well, too. I heard that, well, first of all, he's the best in our band. You know, <laughs> He's like the best musician there. Everybody agrees with that. But um, I heard uh, Schmeens say, Schmeens, Adam Spirnoff from Lettuce, yeah. said to me recently, he's like, oh, man, I had a chance to play with Alan. That dude's a fucking crazy drummer. He's awesome. Right and hearing... Like a legit like star of like you know the funk world, comment that it was you know it felt it gave me felt a little justification on the whole Allen thing you know what I mean because I I feel what you're saying is like he does not get the props that he deserves from the people in the music scene and and I think largely in part because he's so humble, you know to get props you need to really. Be loud, not just on your instrument. You need to make noise outside of that. You need to, you know, it's, it's very quiet guy. And I think that he would rather just kind of be that. Like he's, I, I don't know necessarily Alan's looking for the accolades. He just wants to do his job at a high level and, and, you know, make the band sound as good as he could possibly make it sound. That's the thing about him. He's, he's an he's all business, no frills type of guy. You know, let's just get down to the nitty-gritty and, and do what it takes to, to make this a great show. All right, let's go to the Little League game. You're at a seemingly... Did we talk about this at the last one, or is this, this is post-last podcast? Oh, uh, yeah. Although you did send me the music, literally, like, some of the first music you recorded you sent to me, if you remember. You guys Poison. were just... You guys were just jamming. I don't even think you were doing covers. or All It was right. like pieces of songs. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, had a little right, back right. and forth. I was like, wow, you, I think you might have something here. Right, yeah. So I get inspired by things, and then I get so obsessed with it that I end up in a van touring the country. You know, that's <laughs> what happens. That's the short story. Is but I love I, that it started at a little, little, little an innocent exchange at a little league baseball game that your so, your son was playing. So before no, he wasn't even playing there. That's the creepy part. Whoa. So so this is uh, this is what happened. You're going to little league games I, where your son is. In I'm listening to a lot of Gray Boy All Stars. I'm being I'm getting back into Gray Boy and kind of listening to Quill Stillwell, who I, I feel like we play kind of a similar kind of a bass, very straight, you know, kind of funky, fast. Yeah, type. and Carl's a big inspiration to you. For a couple of reasons, but one of the things is uh, 
nodding back to the rogue and 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 or rogue how do you say it rogue i say rogue but you know tomato tomato down to the rogue and in camden carl whenever i'm around him i hear him doing his backstage warm-ups and it's the kind of thing that it's like wow i'd like to be able to play those arpeggios up and down the neck you know and, and really know my scales like carl and that never left my head you know from 20 years ago when I heard Carl the first time I was like wow this guy's a master I need to really dig in if I'm going to get to that level ever it's just always been there just kind of pushing me pushing me to keep keep up with the instrument and keep pushing you know you could go and in keep any healthy. direction he's so, always healthy huge inspiration for you know being older and staying healthy and you know staying staying young and vibrant but still doing the touring lifestyle so um I'm listening to a lot of Grey Boy All-Stars, and I'm listening to a lot of Sharon Jones. It all kind of came out of that Sharon Jones holiday album. We get to the Christmas time, and in my family, we throw on the Sharon Jones holiday album, and that becomes the go-to album for the week. Uh, and we're Dap Kings fans, and I just got deeper and deeper into what I call like that second generation of soul and funk. You know, it's the stuff from the '90s and 2000s that really connected with me, and I, I kind of never dug deep into the first generation of, of funk and soul yes i've heard it a, a lot of it but i never did it on an academic level okay so like what i mean by that is when i went to jazz school i studied academically the music of the 20s you know the music of the 30s the music of the 40s and the 50s and i got so deep into the 50s and the 60s uh, it was a year-long process when I was only in jazz school for a year. Yeah, if I may say, when we first hung out on the uh, on the water by uh, Ocean Mist, we could take a... Do you want to pause? And we're, I'll grab some. Just grab Can a you little. pause? So, you know, when I was in music school, I got, like, deeply into, like cool jazz like you know all of the miles davis was miles davis is such a big inspiration for like the way that he reinvented himself every 10 years from bebop to inventing cool jazz you know to uh, to inventing modal jazz with milestones and whatever 57 or 58 and then you know essentially which got taken in such a far and furious way by coltrane you know in the early 60s and the the stuff that he did when um uh, when he fired Reggie Workman, who actually told me this story in our first like class that we had at Reggie at, did at, himself yeah, at the new school. He he told us the story. He said, "I want to tell you guys a story." Uh, I got fired by John Coltrane, and the reason was because Jimmy Garrison. He didn't sound like anybody else. I was playing bass the way you were supposed to play bass. I was playing jazz the way that you were supposed to play jazz. That's not what John Coltrane wanted. He wanted somebody to break down the barriers of what it was going to be. And Garrison came in and just did everything as unconventional as you can imagine it. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, he just wanted that to be a lesson to us. On day one of jazz school, the lesson was like, hey, you know, you can master this and get fired for not being an individual. So, you know, be yourself first and foremost. Find your own voice. Hugely influential moment in my life, you know. Um, well, we talk about the Kill Mommy thing. Joni Mitchell's thing about Kill Mommy. That if you listen too much to one specific musician, that you have to completely stop so that they're not informing you, so that it allows yourself to come out more. Right. 
Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I did that with fish years ago. I just stopped because so otherwise it's just like programming you to set to to think those sounds, you know, or think those patterns or whatever it is. Or Mike Gordon's a pretty good mommy if you're gonna have one, though. He's a great mommy. Just so many different things. But go on. Um. So, I you know towards the end of that year, I just got into like you know Dexter Gordon and Horace Silver and you know and and Cannonball Adderley, one of my favorite musicians of all time, um, and uh, got every one of the Village Vanguard, John Coltrane, you know CDs and 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 like still to this day have like 300 jazz CDs in my and you know sitting in my garage that are there like all wrapped up not not that I ever need them but it's just a, a moment in my life you know where I had to buy them for school it was like instead of books you buy CDs <laughs> and uh send them to me before you throw them out if you ever get to that point but I got so deeply into the jazz uh that you know of course I heard James Brown and I saw him play and I heard Pink Funk and I saw them play and I had a profound experience watching P-Funk. That was the night that I decided that I wanted to be and I know I'm jumping all over no, the place. No, that's right. What year would that be? Story. What year would that be? I saw P-Funk in 94, I believe it was, at Penn and and I got dosed. Somebody like gave me a, a, a piece of acid and I had like 10 or 15 hits of acid on it and I went out to this P-Funk show and I saw my now wife but at that point very new friend Deb from across the field and was drawn into her and I was out of my head and I kind of just walked over to her and was like hey listen I'm gonna put my arms around you I hope can I can I please hold, hold on to you I need to hold on to somebody right young now. people I wouldn't recommend doing this today don't ever do in that. this well, I culture asked, I asked I was like can I do you mind if I put my arms around you and she was like not at all and I did and I was like something's going on Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> I'm out of my head right now. And then we, I just held her the whole show, and we just watched P-Funk together. And then uh, we went back to my apartment, and I took the bass and played, you know, like uh, along with P-Funk bass lines for 15 hours, man. She, I was fucked up. And she went, hung out with me for a couple of hours, fell asleep on my bed. Or I think, actually, she reminded me recently, she fell asleep on my like chair next to my bed. And I just sat on the edge of the bed. And she woke up like eight hours later, and I was still playing P-Funk bass lines. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to do this. Like, this is it. I could do this. Like, something clicked. I was like, I could do this. I could be, you know, somebody dosed me. It's so interesting that Ellis big and and it and it opened up a part of my brain that gave me the confidence and and the joke that I had was there's four bass players in P funk like you know that's four jobs right there one band <laughs> you know but uh, but it's interesting though because they were initially inspired by an LSD experience have you ever seen Mike Judge's show where it's a cartoon and they tell the whole stories you've seen I that I've seen I've seen it I've, the one I on P funk the whole thing they were in Boston I think at MIT and the, and they got hung up with the dead and the dead dosed them and Clinton that started the whole thing yes. So this that started me off for sure, man. That experience being at P Funk on LSD started me off just they, fine. They passed it forward, the psychedelia. They sure did. Um, so I, I didn't know until many years later what had happened to me. But at my wedding, the kid who dosed me told me about that night. He told me about the ten hits and the whole thing, and he's like, "Oh, Brownstein can handle it," and he gave it to me, and I was <laughs> he's a big guy. Yeah. Anyway, yada yada yada. <laughs> but out, outside of these. You know, just casual listening to funk and soul and R&B. I never really studied it as a musician. I, you know, the way that I studied jazz or the way that I studied, 
you know, rock and the way that I deconstructed electronic music and stuff like that. Uh, I just missed like this, you know, 10 or 15 year period of the golden years of, of, of American music. And so I started circling back around, you know, inspired by people who were inspired by that, you know, inspired by Carl and by Sharon and, and by the Dab Kings. I started to dig back a generation and play along with it. there it was, part one of my interview with Mark Brownstein. If you notice, it was inverted. We did start with the end and move to the beginning, and that is in honor of Disco Biscuits. They are the masters of the inverted performance of a song. Is that correct, Seth? <laughs> All right, as we told you, we have another episode coming up with more uh, from Mark, more music from their first shows of this uh, massive Set Break is Over tour. And we're going to learn about what's going on with Seth at his event. Uh, well, you're about to hit strings and soul, but you're at the end of which one? Just finished Closer to the called? Sun. Closer to the Sun. Closer to the Sun. Yes, sir. So tune in. Here's, some dis- here's more Disco Biscuits for you. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>
Thank you.